There was, a, there was also a discussion, there has been an ongoing discussion for years about who museums are for. Welcome to Drexel's 10,000 Hours podcast. Our goal is to mine the stories behind our region's innovators, inventors, and thought creators. We'll be talking to experts in subjects from fashion to neuroscience to find out where their passion for work and inspiration for ideas comes from. I'm your host, Maurice Baynard. Derek Gilman is a distinguished teaching professor in Drexel University's Westfall College of Media Arts and Design and is the senior advisor to President John Fry for the university collections. He's worked in museums all around the world, including a position as the executive director and president of the Barnes Foundation. He also would like you to know that he had a small hand in the Marvel Adventures headquarters, but we'll get to that story later. Who is your favorite artist? Paul Clay. And why? I actually, I almost can't tell you because I liked Clay since I was about, must have been 13 or 14 when I first came across his work, which is very sort of weird to actually start liking somebody and continue liking them till you're sort of right. ancient and well, archaic. What's the story around you first running into Clay? So I know what it was. It, I was finding, I was with my mother in, a, in an art store I think we were in an art store. We might have been somewhere like one of the places that sell posters. Um, so I remember I was there looking for a birthday present for my brother. Now, I saw this clay, it was, uh, and it was a round face, um, these oval eyes, and just fell in love with the picture. And from then on, I was hooked. I can never get tired of him. I say, there are, there are many artists in the world of whom I say, one is too many. But for me, you can never have too many clays. Can you draw a line directly from that experience as a young man mm. to what you ended up doing for a living? Yeah, I think so. Mm. Although it's not a straight line. It's a quite a rather wiggly line. So I'm excited to ask you about university. Yeah. Where'd you go? I went to Oxford. <laughs> I love the way you say that. <laughs> like, like you're ashamed. Like you, it's yeah. okay. It's okay. Is it's it all right? right? Is it all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you get there? I get there. I'd always been sort of very evenly divided between the arts and sciences. And so I was beginning to think, no, I don't want to be an artist after all. And so I persuaded two art schools to give me interviews at the end of the first year. And then I announced to my parents I was going to leave Oxford and go to art school. How did that go? Not well. I mean, there was no screaming or shouting, but otherwise not well. So um, it ended up with my father saying, uh, which was in, in clever, I must say, he was a good parent. He said, I'll pay for you to go to art school after you finish Oxford. Cunning. <laughs> That's a great... Very great. cunning. Very cunning. I mean... <laughs> That's yeah. a great strategy. He might have been called on it, but he wasn't. Um, so I back I went and I, I changed to Chinese. And your next question, I guess. Is... Why did you change Chinese? That isn't going to be my next question. Oh, good. Okay. All right. Let's do something else. Yeah. Let's. let's <laughs> I'd love to talk about a sort of like after you left um, Oxford. After I finished my degree, I went to China for a year. And how'd you get to China? So that was that was nice. There was a at the time there was a British Council scholarship, and and they sent um, they paid for a number of each year for a number of. Um, students to go to China. 
Do you feel like at this point in your life you have a direction? You know what you're going to do. Did you know what you were going to be no. when you grew no up? No idea. I think, however, that by the time I graduated, because I'd done I'd done my special subjects in Chinese philosophy and Chinese painting, that I knew I wanted to be in the arts somehow. So um, that's what, when I came back from China, those were the jobs that I was looking for. And that was the point at which I felt I'd done five years of higher education and probably I wasn't going to call my father on the art school. So that was the clever bit on his part. But I, I got a job in auction house. So that was... So which auction house? Christie's. What was your expertise? Um, so I was Chinese specialist. I, I was one of the two people in the auction world that spoke Chinese at the time. And then I spent you know, a few months on the front desk, and then I was thrown into, into the Chinese department as a Chinese specialist. And, and all I, you know, I, I studied Chinese painting at university, and that was it. But I learned very fast. I was wondering if you could just walk us through your resume from Christie's to the Barnes, stopping to highlight like really great positions that you fill. Um, post Christie's, I went to British Museum. So that was that was sort of fun. It's where I developed my academic speciality in Chinese sculpture. Um, uh, how long were you at the British Museum? I was there for four years, and then I then I was then I was. I was encouraged to apply for a museum directorship, which I didn't think I'd get because I was very young at the time, but I did. Um, at a relatively new university called the University of East Anglia, which had only been founded in the early 60s in Norwich, which is on the bump of England, um, on the east. So I, I was there for 10 years and I ran the university museum. After those 10 years and you figured out how to be a museum director, where did you go? I went to Australia. We went to Australia. Yeah, what was the circumstance that, that led you from England to Australia? Uh, somebody who was a mentor time um, said, it's a fantastic job and I've recommended you for it. And, um, and then there was a pause at the end of him telling me all about the job and how wonderful it was. And then it was like, it, was, it wasn't, it, it was one of those hesitant pauses. It was, and, and then it came out quite quickly. It's in Australia and they want to know by tomorrow afternoon. Oh, so we ended up, we picked, picked up our two girls, two little girls, and we went off to Australia and spent four years there at the National Gallery of Victoria, which is a wonderful, it's an encyclopedic museum. It's the oldest, sort of grandest um, encyclopedic museum in Australia. It's like, it's like the Philadelphia Museum of Art in size and um, collection. Was your job there to expand acquisition or to... I was, I was, I was, I was deputy director. And so I was, I was responsible first of all for international art and then art, all of it. So my question was, so then you love Australia. What could have dragged you away from Australia? Um, it was just the, the, the concern about doing, being too far from my parents. Right. Um, so we've been here for 20 years and we still really like it. It's a really good city. Um, so, so what's your first job here? So the first job was at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. Right. And I started as director and provost and became president and director. And I loved it, the, old, the oldest arts institution in America, yes. art school and museum. I, I, I said when I became president there, this is, you know, this is great. I always wanted to go to art school. I just didn't expect to get in at this end. Um, <laughs> right, this is very, finally, you're <laughs> yeah, in finally art school. In, finally in. And I did actually, they, 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 the, there was one year, I think it was 2004, 2005, 
where the faculty made me an honorary graduate of a graduating class. That's fantastic. I graduated art school, you know, you done did, it. You finally, <laughs> yeah, finally did it. done it. And you didn't have to do a, like a senior project. To, right. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Time so, heals all wounds. Yeah. yeah. Can you explain the outdoor art there at the... I think a lot of people don't know what to expect. No? Yes? Right, you right. You got say, say, everybody, say everybody in the studio has the same question. Can you explain the I, outdoor I, art yes, at the Pennsylvania Academy? I can, but it's after me. I mean, yeah, it was all happened. It's all happened post me. So it ended up with two pieces. One by Jordan Grishko, who was one of our students, um, a student when I was there, who did the crashed aeroplane, yes. the the Grumman, um, which I I'm you know really fond of, and I I think Jordan's a really good artist, and he seems to have been doing quite well, and. You know, it's, it's unusual because it was it wasn't intended to stay there. It was it was one of those pieces that was there as an installation. I think maybe for six months originally, and it's you know all these years later, it's still it's there. Still. But I really think it holds the space, and that's a very good example of how an artist can sort of emerge unexpectedly for everybody. Because a measure of something good is whether it can stand against other good things. So in this case, it was. It was one of the most important buildings in Philadelphia, the, the Furnace, the historic, the Great Furnace Monument. Could it hold that space? And it has actually, I think, held that space really well. So the other piece at the other end is the Kleis Oldenburg, um, the paint torch. And that is very big for people who haven't seen it. It's this big paintbrush, which, uh, which has got a flick of paint at the end. Um, and it's got a blob, separate blob of paint on the, on the, on the ground. And, and we think of Oldenburg as, as actually being very well represented in Philadelphia because there's the clothespin, which is at Center Square, which is this huge, monumental, very early sculpture. is his first major commission. And then you've got the, the button, the broken button on the Penn campus outside the Penn Library. And then the electrical plug on the, in the sculpture garden at the Philadelphia Museum. And then you've got the paintbrush at Paffa. So you could sort of tour Oldenburg's work from sort of beginning all the way through. It's, like, it's almost as if Philadelphia is Oldenburg's sculpture park. So when did you get to the barns? I arrived in t- late 2006. If I told you I was going to the barns and I didn't have time to see everything, yeah. what would you suggest I should not miss? You've got to stand in the main gallery. I'm not going to say one painting. You've just got to stand in the main gallery because the main gallery is a sort of statement by Barnes of, of, his, of his vision, of his educational philosophy. The whole thing started with him wanting to educate his workers. Um, his work was, were, were working-class white women and African-American men, and he felt that there, there were very little educational opportunities for both those groups, and he... And he, he'd worked his way up from nothing, and he wanted to help. And he selected, you know, he's, these were the people in his factory. He said, I can, I can give my workers something which they can't get anywhere else. I'll give them an education. And, I'll, you know, it was very paternalistic, but he did it. And he carried the idea onto the, um, onto the foundation, and he worked with the philosopher John Dewey. And he said, this is, you know, this is about changing the working class. And so when he hung the gallery to articulate an educational view of the world, which was, if I can show people 
how to think about art, then they'll think about all sorts of things in new ways. It's sort of it's almost like um, I'll prime the pump of people's interest in bigger things, whether philosophy, art, music, whatever. I used to play music in the galleries. Every gallery is hung to articulate these relation the relationships which you wanted students to analyze so the main gallery which is drop dead gorgeous has all these great works of art but they're hung very symmetrically the artists Barnes's artists all in this great hall you can go in there i i don't recommend you turn away and go out but you know that would for me be you know you will have got the what Barnes was about in that main gallery and in the corner there's a cabinet which nobody pays any attention to, which was the Victrola, which was an early gramophone. And he used to play Debussy and music because he would say, listen, to, analyze the music, look at the paintings, all works in the same way, rhythm, balance, harmony, repetition. Fantastic. I will definitely look for the cabinet the next time I'm there. It's on the, yeah. So what is your current position? So I'm professor at Drexel, Art History and Museum Leadership, and I advise the Drexel president on the university collections. What's Derek Gilman's legacy when, in 50 years, we see all your work as an omnibus? What do you think um, scholars will extract from it? Oh, I, I, when you said scholars, I, you let me down. <sighs> um, people think it, I should say the Barnes is my legacy, but... I think it was when I was sitting in a movie theatre with my son watching Avengers, The Age of Ultron, and suddenly the Sainsbury Centre flashes up with the crescent wing on the screen um, with Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Helmsworth walking in front of it saying, this is our new headquarters. So I think it's actually um, having a real hand in the Avengers headquarters is my legacy. But I'm not sure that's what scholars would say. We wanted to talk a little bit more about about this. Museums. Um, about museums. And then I have a, a last question, and that was okay. uh, how technology is right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The right. way in which we interact yeah. with museums and right. how you think yeah, that's yeah. going to yeah, yeah, change yeah. it yeah. in the future. Right. So I think one of the really interesting things about where we are now, uh, as opposed to where I started you know, in the British Museum in 81, is that we don't take museums for granted as as institutions that might last forever because the money is just going to pour down from the heavens because it doesn't anymore. And museums change like all institutions change because of economic pressures. So you know, one of the reasons why museums have evolved and become much more audience-centric is because funders want museums to be much more audience-centric. I think left to their own devices, curators would still you know, do things for themselves, for the most part. Well, the younger generation wouldn't, but... But let's, let's sort of bring ourselves up to the 21st century. It, there is a sense now that, that of public ownership in a museum, I think which is not to do with funding or where the money comes from, but they become, in a good way, a more significant part of society than they used to be. That doesn't mean to say that the attendance is always higher, but they're, because of ideas about safe spaces, because of ideas about exploring identity, because of a greater acceptance or a, a more widespread interest in contemporary art and the challenges that are posed often by um, works of contemporary art, there is an engagement, I think, with, with, um, with museums 
as important places which wasn't there before. But that is, for the most part, I think, a middle-class preoccupation. So one of the issues that I, that many of us have been grappling with for years is how do museums reach out to people, A, who are underserved, or people who you know, are not brought up within a house that says go to museums, you know, for which museums are not normal places. They're, you know, a football game may be a normal place, but not a museum. So I think that's, that's a really big issue. I don't have a, you know, I'm not worried about how relevant museums will be because I, I think there's so much interesting stuff going on in many museums to engage with different audiences that even though some museums would be less relevant than others, there's, a, there's, there's, there's always interesting things. But this problem of how, how to engage people who just don't go. Now, there are two issues here. One is people don't go because they're genuinely not interested and they don't have to be interested. So I often use the analogy here of saying, how do you get Derek Gilman to be engaged with American football? And it's really hard. I'll watch the Super Bowl. I'll support the Eagles, you know, um, particularly when they're in the Super Bowl. But <laughs> once every 30 years, right. Derek Gilman but is I, really I interested have to say, in you know, American football. I see it from the other side, you know, right. and people say, why should I be interested in soccer? And I say, yeah, you're right. Why should you be? I mean, there's no reason. Right. So then you know, why should I be interested in museums? I'm interested in lots of other things. So that's, you know, that's with where you see a museum as part of the available educational leisure opportunities in any country. And you're not going to coerce people into doing things they don't want to do. I think the, the more interesting side is... Um, for somebody who doesn't think about going to museums, who hasn't been, ed- hasn't been you know, privileged to have a house that said, where parents said, try a museum, I mean, it's not part of the milieu, how do you make people aware of, of an opportunity in a way that isn't intimidating? I mean, because it was, Margaret Research says there are certain, some people, certainly there, there are people who find museums intimidating, particularly ones in you know, classical museums, which have big steps like the PMA or the Metropolitan, you know, the temples, the temple museums. Yes. Um, and I think that's really, it's a hard, it's a hard challenge. And obviously you, it's nice to think about getting kids in and hoping they'll come back. But one of the, one of the solutions here to engaging people who might not have thought about museums is is much more genuine community outreach. That is, museums doing things outside the museum. Japan has done it really interesting ways because they've had museums in shopping malls for decades, and it's happening in China too. And I'm really for that. I actually really like this. This place, there's a K11 museum in uh, Shanghai, um, where I lectured a few years ago, and. And I like I just liked it because it's just in the middle of a shopping mall, and then you go down, and you think this is going to be really cheesy, but it's not. It's actually a proper museum. It just happens to be in a place where you don't expect to see a museum, and where you say, "Why did you come in? Why did you try it?" So, so you think it's a good idea if we blow up the build the big stone buildings, and I don't mean literally blow them up, but move away from them, because what's really important is the engagement with the art, not the fact that you're in that building. All the engagement with knowledge with history, with art. Yeah, there are all these different things that museums offer. Some, like the Franklin Institute here, science, that are the Academy of Natural Sciences at Drexel, natural history. You know, it doesn't have to be art. It's, it's knowledge, it's... it's right. But yes, I, I'm yeah, not blowing them up, but, but thinking of ways in which we can get out 
um, into a, a space which is a, an ordinary space. So it becomes a, an ordinary experience and not a, it's special, but it's, it's part of the real world. So I know these are all these, somewhere they're big questions, somewhere they're basic questions. They're questions that the museum world has been wrestling with for the last 40 years. Uh, there aren't easy and obvious answers. Uh, one answer is technology. Um, that really helps. I mean, I think we're all quite excited. Everybody in the profession is quite excited by what tech can do. I mean, I'm at Drexel. One of the things we're really interested in, and this is um, in Westfall, is virtual reality, augmented reality. Can you imagine me um, putting on a VR headset and walking through the British Museum while being here in Philadelphia and getting this and getting the same experience? No, you won't get the same experience. But what you'll get now, I, for me, it's different. Um, it's really interesting because that would be like watching a TV program. You know, you've even got, though it's three dimensional, even three dimensional, but it was still because you're still you're even though you're going to feel you're in there, you're 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 not seeing something any different in any different way really than you're seeing it on a really high def screen, I mean TV screen. So for me, it's the augmented side where you're. I'd rather I'm, I'm quite interested. Say you're putting on a on a headset with AR facility, walking through the Philadelphia Museum. And, and looking at a Rembrandt, say, and then seeing, you know, say a Rembrandt, a Rembrandt side of beef, and then seeing the Soutine side of beef, seeing, um, you know, talking a uh, crucifixion, which is you know, which is what these paintings of sides of beef really are, and having then having a sort of just in one part of your one part of your vision, so that you know, say your left eye was was seeing the information, your right eye was seeing the actual painting. And and I think that's really interesting. I don't know. I mean, it's a, it, as I describe it, yeah, it's crude, but you know, technology gets more and more sophisticated, so the experience becomes more seamless. And what we want to do is get away from the idea that you're you, you're not actually engaging with something. Somewhere you're still in the you know you're still with the object, and there's a there's a there's a direct experience which is not the same as seeing it on a screen, which. Um, there's no there's no experience that we've had yet, no research which has shown that the increase in technology, the 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 the, the increase of access of, of material on the internet, um, and of audio guides of of apps has actually diminished people's desire to see the real thing, which is what was a fear originally. You, know, you can't do that because nobody will go to the museum. It's nonsense. People are more encouraged to go after they've seen it. So it's all part of enhancing the experience. And for me, it's, the, it's making it more accessible. So now, I suppose what you could say, this is where it comes back to our early, the earlier part of this conversation with your VR. Suppose you give somebody who you know, hadn't thought about going to a museum a VR set and say, I'm going to walk you through the Van Gogh Museum. And I'll tell you about the paintings while we're going through. You know that would be, a, and then and then saying at the end now, does that make does that does that interest you? And you say no, um, not really. Or yeah, I'd really like to see these things. Well, actually, you can see some of them at the Philadelphia Museum. Now that would be that would be okay. Derek Gilman, thank you so much for uh, walking us through the world's great museums. Thank you. Drexel's ten thousand hour podcast is hosted by me, Maurice Baynard. Our producers are Sean Fitzpatrick and Nathan Barrett. Drexel's 10,000 Hours 
podcast is powered by Drexel University Online.